In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, that you would give us the ability to grasp what it is that you want to teach us this morning. Guide my words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Imagine that you are a, uh, a trained mountain rescuer, and you're good at what you do, but you're rather unsuccessful in rescuing people. The reason is, is for some strange reason, if someone is stuck down a cliff and you lower a rope down to the person, they just kind of stare dumbly at it as though they have no idea what it's for. Or, or maybe if you uncover someone that has been buried in an avalanche, they just lie there. Like they don't know they're supposed to stand up. Or if you hand a crutch to someone who has sprained an ankle, they just kind of look at it curiously and then drop it. People, for some odd reason, simply don't respond to the rescue effort. It's not that they necessarily fight being rescued. It's it's like they don't even recognize that they're being rescued. Makes no sense at all. And as ludicrous as that would be if it were true, I sometimes wonder if God doesn't feel like an ignored rescuer. When I'm being rescued by God, it's important that I cooperate in the effort. Not that we can do anything to save ourselves. That's not the point. We're powerless to do anything in that respect. We can never deserve our salvation, but we can and we should respond to the rescuer in the ways that he asks us to respond. When someone throws you a life preserver and yells, grab it, hey, grab it! Makes sense, right? That said, though, admitted, admittedly, there is a difference between being rescued by a human being in a physical rescue and being rescued by God in a spiritual rescue. Nobody is likely to, to think that we should fight against being rescued or ignore our rescuer in a physical rescue. You know, I broke my leg and, and I need help. But the truth is, is we may not know how to respond to God in a spiritual rescue, simply for the fact that God is invisible. How do we respond and cooperate with an invisible rescuer? I remember one of my seminary professors teaching me something that about how we interact with God and respond to God that I had never really even considered before. The more I think about what he said, the more I'm, I'm convinced that, that he's right. <clears throat> the way that God 
designed for us to interact and respond to him is through ritual. Spiritual rituals. If you've never thought that about it before, think about it today. Rituals are activities with a specific goal, right? Brushing your teeth is a ritual. Something that you do every day because you want clean teeth. It's a it's a ritual of habit. It's a ritual of necessity. If you don't, you're going to end up with rotten teeth. But there's another kind of ritual. Rituals of meaning. Rituals of meaning. For instance, our family, uh, we have a ritual on Friday evenings for welcoming the Sabbath. We gather around the supper table and we sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. And then we recite the fourth commandment together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and so on, right? The longest commandment. This is not a ritual based on necessity. It's a ritual based on meaning. We are honoring what God has declared holy. The power of this ritual exists in our minds. Getting married is a ritual of meaning because two people are publicly committing, promising, something to each other that will affect them the rest of their lives. Baptism is a ritual of meaning when we publicly promise to God something that will affect us for the rest of our lives. Communion is a ritual of meaning that connects us in our minds to the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Morning worships, devotionals are rituals of meaning. Coming to church every week, if you never thought about it, coming to church every week is a ritual that connects us to God. Giving tithes and offerings each week are rituals of interaction with the divine realm. Rituals are the God-ordained way that we cooperate with God and respond to God in our minds. Rituals are the primary ways that we interact with the spiritual realm. So if that's true, that means that rituals are vital to a vibrant and maturing spiritual life. After Jesus came to earth, the rituals that we participate in underwent a significant change. But the lessons that those old rituals taught us still can teach us to respond to our rescuer. And today we're going to look at just a few of the lessons we can learn from some of those ancient rituals in the Old Testament sanctuary. So in your imagination, place yourself at the Old Testament sanctuary in the desert and watch what happens. The desert is cool in the morning. The men and the women, there are some, several of them stand in the sanctuary courtyard in the early morning, and maybe they shiver a little bit, you know, as the sun is coming up over the hills and hasn't warmed things up yet. One man has with him a male goat. Another man holds a bowl of grain that has been crushed into flour. Another man has a ram and another a young bull. A widow holds a dove. All of them are waiting for the priest to offer the morning sacrifice so that afterward each of them can offer an individual sacrifice. They have a ritual to perform. These Israelites watch in solemn silence as the priest goes about his daily ritual. It's called the daily 
sacrifice. The priest has a one-year-old lamb with him, and he carefully inspects it to make sure it has no defect. The lamb represents the Messiah who's going to come in the future for them. Any imperfection, that lamb is disqualified. So the priest takes the inspection very seriously because he knows of more than one instance when God did not accept a sacrifice because it did not follow the ritual protocol. You remember the story of Cain, for example, many centuries before, who had prepared a sacrifice of the first fruits of the garden from his garden. But God did not accept Cain's sacrifice because Cain refused to bring a lamb. When God establishes a protocol for us to follow in our interaction with him, he actually means it. So the priest is satisfied that the lamb has no defects. He lays his hands on the lamb's head and he confesses the sins on behalf of the nation. And then symbolically, the sins of the entire Israelite community now rest on this lamb, just as the sin of the world would one day rest on the Messiah. So you can see the symbolism there. Then, taking a sharp sword, the priest swiftly slits the throat of the lamb, and as the lamb collapses, he holds a bowl under the wound and collects the blood. Then, bowl in hand, he walks around the altar and he sprinkles the blood on all four sides of the altar. The sins of the people, symbolically carried in the blood, are transferred to the sanctuary where, where they will remain until the Day of Atonement. And you remember that we talked about that earlier. On that day, then, the sanctuary will be cleansed of all the stored-up sin. The lamb, then, is then skinned and cut into pieces, and specific pieces are washed. Then the lamb is placed on the altar, and some flour mixed with olive oil and some wine is mixed with it. Every part of this ritual means something. The lamb represents the Messiah who would carry the sins of the people and die as an innocent victim. That's why John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. The washing, washing the parts of the Lamb with the water of purification, represented the purification of the sinner from the disease of sin. You remember that Jesus told Nicodemus that he had to be born of the Spirit and water, right? It's why Jesus told Peter that if he didn't wash his feet, he didn't have a part with him in his kingdom. From Jesus' side, Blood and water poured out, right? The flower represented the life-giving power of the Messiah. The wine represented the blood that would take away their sin. Jesus called himself the bread of life from the flower. And he instituted communion bread and wine. Everything in the ritual had meaning. This daily sacrifice happened every morning, and every evening, day in, day out, month after month, year after year. It was a foundational sacrifice that atoned for the sins of the community. And we're going to use that word a lot today, atonement. 
So just to be sure that everybody knows what it means, atonement is actually a word that you can take apart into three. At-one-ment. You see it? At-one-ment. It literally refers to taking something that is broken and making it one again. So repentance and forgiveness helps to make God and us one again. And there are other things that are also involved in restoring the broken relationship. So if if the if this sacrifice covered the sins of the community, why are the people standing there with other animals? They're there because there's more involved in atonement than is symbolized in the daily sacrifice alone. The daily sacrifice covered such instances as when someone did not know they had sinned. This is very interesting. The sacrifice covered them until they discovered and confessed their sin. It also covered cases where someone couldn't necessarily bring a sacrifice. Maybe they were sick, or as in later years when, when they were in Canaan, maybe they lived too far away that they couldn't just come all of the time to bring their sacrifice. This daily foundational sacrifice covered the people until they could come and confess their sin. Now, this is a perfect illustration of how the sanctuary answers a question that perplexes many fearful saints who worry that their salvation hangs in the balance by a thread. I hate to say it, but I, I have visited many, too many, let's put it that way, I've visited too many people on their deathbed who were unsure whether they would get to go to heaven. Lifelong Adventists. And they were unsure if they get to go to heaven. Maybe you've even you've heard people, or maybe you've even wondered it yourself. What happens if I die before I have the opportunity to confess? I commit a sin, I had a car accident, and then is that sin going to keep me out of heaven? The daily sacrifice is the answer to that question. You have a foundational sacrifice in Jesus Christ, which covers you until you have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness. God knows the hearts of his people. And anyone who would have confessed a sin, but never had the opportunity, is covered by the foundational sacrifice. Your salvation is sure if your heart clings to the Lamb of God. Amen? When my boys were young, I held their hands because they fell a lot when they were learning to walk. That's why I held their hands, so that when they fell, I could catch them and lift them up again. That's why I held their hands. In faith, put your hand in Jesus, and when you fall, you are not automatically lost because you are still in his grasp. You are still in his grasp, and he does not let go when you fall. The only way that he will ever let you go is if you make it clear to him that you want to go it on your own. But even then, 
even then, he's only a prayer away from taking your hand again. Hold on to Jesus in faith and you are safe. You are safe. And people think the Old Testament sanctuary has no relevance for New Testament Christians. Mm. We learn something else also that's vital. Even though that we are covered by the foundational sacrifice, those with the opportunity are required to participate in the individual rituals of atonement. We do respond to our rescue. That's why people are there with the sanctuary, at the sanctuary with their animals. So the priest motions the first man with the goat. And he says to the priest, I'm bringing a burnt offering as part of a vow that I made to the Lord. The priest nods. Male? Yes. No blemishes? No. Very well. Proceed. The man could have brought a sheep or a bull or whatever for this offering, even a dove or a pigeon if he was very poor. The type of animal depended on the person's financial situation. It needed to be valuable to him. His sacrifice needed to cost him something. You may remember the story of King David. After King David's sin, a, a plague swept through the, the, the community, the, the people of Israel. And he needed to make an emergency offering to stop the plague that was the result of his sin. He went to the place that he needed to sacrifice, and he offered to buy the property. And the man that owned the property, you remember the story? He said, no, I'll give it to you, along with all of the animals that you need to sacrifice. But David refused, saying, I will not give an offering to the Lord that costs me nothing. Among the many lessons the sanctuary rituals teach us, is that our offerings to the Lord, especially when we give them as part of repentance for our sin, they ought to cost us something. To be acceptable, the offering must be a sacrifice on our part to give it. This is not because we're buying forgiveness. That's not even possible. Everything already belongs to God. What we give to God merely reflects what's in our hearts. It reflects what's in our hearts. A small gift that costs us nothing shows that level of sincerity in our hearts. Sincere gratitude and sincere repentance will desire to give an offering that is valuable to us. In the value of the gift, God sees the sincerity of our repentance. It means something special to God when we give in a way that costs us, which means the opposite is also true. It doesn't mean as much to God when we give in a way that does not cost us. You know the story of the widow's might in the Gospels. The priests and the Pharisees gave these huge amounts of money to their church, and Jesus said, the widow, who gave almost nothing, gave more than them all, because she gave all she had. She gave in a way that cost her. She gave what she could not spare. And that was far more valuable to God than go, those who gave from what they could spare. Interesting things we learned from the sanctuary. So the man with the burnt offering places his hand on the goat's head 
and he takes the sword. As the priest holds the bowl below the, the throat, the goat's throat, the man cuts, and the priest again sprinkles the blood around the altar. And then the man swiftly skins the goat and cuts it into pieces. Then as the priest had done before, the man takes certain parts, the, the parts that have come in contact with the waste products of the goat, he takes them to the basin of water, and he washes them. Again, to be acceptable, giving a gift to the Lord has to follow a certain protocol. The one obvious part of that protocol is that the gift cannot be offered with such impurities as the animal's waste products, right? You wouldn't bring a, a dirty lamb to offer to the, the king or whatever it would be, right? Clean it up. There's a protocol. Have you ever considered that it actually is a reality that God has a precise protocol in how we should approach him in certain situations? Yes, there is the element of an intimate friendship with God. And I don't mean to discount that at all. But in certain situations, God has an established protocol for how we approach him. And in those situations, we don't just waltz up carelessly to God. Does that sound strange? Is it strange that God would be so exacting that he demands a specific way that we approach him in certain situations? If we think so, do we think the same thing about, say, if I'm going to the White House to visit the president? Would I think it's strange? Well, what do you mean I have to, you know, dress up or I have to have someone take me? Why can't I just walk right in? Or the Queen of England or, or whatever, King now, I guess. We don't think it's strange that there are protocols and situations to go before someone. It's not strange either that we would have the same thing for God. That's why we dress our best when we come to church, for instance, or speak quietly in the house of God. We don't offer a dirty offering, so to speak. It's interesting stuff we learn from the sanctuary. So the man finishes washing the dirty parts of the goat, and he brings them back to the priest, who puts the entire goat on the altar. And I stress entire because unlike other offerings, this one was totally burned. Not all offerings were, as we'll see in a minute. With other offerings, the priests and the offerer kept part of the offering for themselves. But the burnt offering was always totally consumed, representing the fact that the Messiah would be totally consumed by his sacrifice. He would give everything, his own body, his blood, his life on the cross to make atonement for you and me. So the burnt offering was an illustration of this. That offering complete, the priest motions the next person forward, and he says, I have a well-being offering, and he presents a calf. And in your Bible, this one may be called a fellowship offering or a, a, maybe a peace offering. This was an offering that someone gave out of joy or gratitude or something positive. So the man told the priest, I'm thanking God for a newborn son. Fascinatingly, even though this was an offering of joy, the man still goes through the atonement ritual, lays his hands on the animal's head, kills it. The blood is sprinkled on the sides of the altar, transferring the sin to the sanctuary. The dirty parts are washed and the animal is burned. And at first I thought it was strange 
that an offering of joy and thanksgiving would require transferring sin to the sanctuary. I thought we were in kind of a different kind of gift here, right? But when we broaden our understanding of what atonement is all about, atonement is all about, it makes perfect sense. This is another critical lesson we learn from the Old Testament sanctuary. Even a thank offering, a gift of gratitude to God, has atoning power because atonement goes beyond forgiveness. It's not just about forgiveness. There's more to it. Atonement reaches into the all-important realm of rebuilding a broken relationship. Our heart is filled with joy because of God's goodness to us, and we respond to him with a gift-giving ritual. And this is part of reconciling our relationship with God, part of responding to our rescue. It's not a bribe to God when we give our offerings to him. We're not buying something from him because it's all his anyway. We're simply showing our love for him in this small, tangible way by giving him something that's valuable to us. So here's the atonement part. It is this love, when combined with the blood of Jesus, that in some mysterious way taps into the process of atonement, the process of restoring the broken relationship. Think about the way that uh, sometimes it's even become a joke when somebody has flowers. My, my wife and I had a fight. People automatically understand that sometimes bringing something is part of fixing what was broken. So think about that the next time you drop a free will thank you gift or a gift of joy into the offering plate. And if you've never done that, you should try it. Now listen to this. Remember how the burnt offering, the entire animal was burned, and the well-being offering, not all of it was burned. Some of the meat went back to the man who gave it, illustrating the benefit that a person receives not only by Jesus' sacrifice on his behalf, but when we give something to God, we receive the benefit back from it, part of it anyway. The man who brought this gift of joy took home with him a portion of the meat, and he went home and had a feast with his family. That was part of the point in it. When you give a gift or a free will offering to God, out of the joy and gratitude in your heart, you will personally receive a blessing from God for that gift. This is a huge thing to understand. We can actually interact with God in the work of restoring our broken relationship by showing our thankfulness and our gratitude by giving a thank offering, and we will receive the benefit. I like that sacrifice. That's a cool sacrifice. The priest then waves forward the next person who's holding a bowl of flour, a grain offering. Now, how can a grain offering be a sacrifice? There's no one's dying. There's no blood. Well, if you look into it, the word sacrifice actually doesn't even mean to kill or burn. It's a Latin word that means to make sacred. Make sacred. Even if it doesn't die. We often use this idea even today. A soldier goes off to war and we say, thank you for your sacrifice. Even if he doesn't die, he doesn't have to die. He's still made a sacrifice. So when you give up something for God, money, habits, lifestyle, food, time, whatever it is, you sacrifice for him. You make something sacred by dedicating that to him. 
Atonement goes beyond the death that brings forgiveness. Perhaps even more importantly, atonement affects life. Atonement affects life. This is a critical concept, and that's why Paul wasn't contradicting himself when he says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, what was it? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So you, your life, is the ultimate sacrifice that you can give to God. By giving up yourself, which costs you dearly, by consecrating your life to God, by being transformed by him, by entering his service, by living for him, you are a grain offering. You are a living sacrifice. Another lesson that we learn from the sanctuary. This new life in Christ, who is the bread of life, is what the grain offering illustrated. So all of those sacrifices, those confusing sacrifices that you read about in the book of Leviticus, all of those things that seem so irrelevant to New Testament Christians, even without going that deep, just look at what they've taught us already about God and salvation. As Christians, we have a, a precious thing in this doctrine of the sanctuary, we call it. We study this stuff, which encompasses all of this and much more. So don't say that the Old Testament rituals have no effect on us today. They're still the same teaching devices, even though we don't observe them as the ceremonial law. We continue to interact with God through rituals by partaking in the bread and the wine of communion. That's what he gave us in, in addition or in after those Old Testament ones. Washing and dying to self in the water of purification, baptism, right? The same, same kind of thing. We still interact with God in our rituals of giving and sacrificing. Not the blood of animals anymore, but of ourselves, our money, our time. And today, like back then, it's all still about being transformed out of the pattern of this world and being restored in relationship with God. Atonement. So... I would encourage you individually and in your families to seek out, to find, to identify, to create some rituals of meaning that you will participate in regularly, including, of course, time spent alone with Jesus. That devotional time is a ritual of meaning of the utmost importance. Also, ways that you give, ways that you dress, songs that you sing, whatever it may be, those rituals can become connection points in your relationship with God. It's very much a part of becoming a living sacrifice. Amen. Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program, and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. 
Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.